I know it's impossible unless you've seen it to really see the providence of God in, in some of the things like picking songs, but Steve wouldn't know this because I hadn't, didn't even think to share this story, but Roger Reed sat right in front of me at Beauty Mountain, and just before one of the preachers went up, he said, there's this song, I know that we've sung it together, and I can't think of what it's called, and he pestered me and pestered me and pestered me trying to figure out what hymn it was, and then first thing this morning, Matthew said, this is what it was, sent me a picture, and it was that song, that song. I got to tell you, folks, I know you're all probably thinking, well, what a coincidence, there are no coincidences. Uh Steve wasn't even supposed to lead singing. Like, how would we even know? In our, in our minds, he wasn't even supposed to lead singing. How would man possibly know that? Well, turn in your Bibles again to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. This particular study is entitled Questions for Christians During Perilous Times, and, and I thought I'd get it done in two teachings and only got through the introduction last time. Uh, so we begin with the first point that's really looking at how these words are described here uh, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I just want to read through that, that chapter once again. And we'll see in the very first verse where we got our title. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth." Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, those are the, uh, the, the wizards of such that were repeating uh, miracles that Moses was doing back in that text. So do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine. Again, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Manor, he says, you've known my doctrine, you've known my manner of life, you've known my purpose, my faith, you've known my long-suffering, you've known my charity, you've known my patience, you've known my persecutions, known my afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutors I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I don't think I had to do this when we went through this a couple weeks ago, but if you mark your Bible, you need to circle verse 12. It does not say that if you shall live fully, your pastor is going to get a handful from the world. It says you will. It says that if ye shall live, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. This is a promise of Scripture. And literally just before this, Paul says, you know that I already have. And not just once. He lists cities upon cities upon cities in which he's gone through and these very things have happened. And I might also point out, he's only citing the things Timothy knows about. I don't get from Paul that he was a complainer. There was probably some suffering he, Timothy didn't know about. But Paul's writing and such that you know what happened in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions that I've endured, 
Now listen to this. Verse 13, evil men, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This very verse is evidence that we're not here to change the world. We're here to give the gospel. We're here to preach salvation. We're here to be a light unto the world, but we're not going to change the world. The world is dying. We do not have the ability to recreate or give new life to the world. That should sound familiar. That's driving the elections, is it not? We can do this. We are the world, we sang back in the 80s and held hands, followed by Kumbaya. The, the green earth theories, the uh, recycling theories, the, uh, all of the things that climate change Charlie's no doubt going to be rolling out soon as well. Biden just had a meeting this past week with his theories on how we'll save the world. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things that... Uh, which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And again, if you mark in your Bibles, you might go back and look that verses 2 all the way down to verse 9 describes the, the men and the women of the perilous times. And then there's a charge here. Paul says, remember what I've already gone through. Remember what I've already experienced. Remember perhaps what Timothy's already experienced. Then there's a fact in verses 13 and 14. Evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. They're going to continue to deceive. And they're going to continue to be deceived. And then here's the charge. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. There's a semicolon here, and we started this study about a month ago with verses 15, 16, and 17. And here's why we are to be steadfast. He says to Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And just like it didn't apply only to pastors or preachers in the beginning of this chapter, verse 17 thankfully also doesn't apply just to pastors or preachers. It is to every child of the king that scriptures are profitable. And this is just the realm in which they are profitable. So some things for us to consider first and foremost is how are these uh, described, these in the perilous times, how are they described? The first phrase we see here is lovers of their own selves. And I'm sure if you listen to the uh, Grace Today or Missionary Radio, which I, I love both stations, love both pastors that are behind them, you've heard many of our preachers today talking about lovers of their own selves and defining these terms. I just want to run through quite a few of them so that we have an understanding of what scriptures is Scripture is referencing here. Lovers of their own selves is not necessarily depicting a homosexual. It is depicting what we've been referring to for a long time as secular, 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 secularizards. Watch out. Secular humanism is depicting those that uh, have a very fond affection of themselves first and foremost, and everything else is a distant second. The entire list that follows this phrase matches very closely with the characteristics of ancient paganism. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 18. And remember what we just read there, because it's, it's very, very close, very, very similar. Romans 1, starting at verse 18. 
It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when excuse me, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change their natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, up until this point, yes, homosexuality is being defined, but homosexuality, even today, is not the concern. It's sin. Well, the problem that we have is that we keep identifying sin as a disease. That We have Christians who abstain from using wine in the Lord's Supper because they previously have been alcoholics. Alcoholism is not a disease. It's a sin. But we've identified it as a disease, and therefore we have to abstain from and ignore and stay away from those things that God had commanded for us to use. When we change the definition, and it doesn't sound like a big deal to most of us, disease, sin, disease, sin, disease, sin, but it's a huge deal. And that's what we see here. Just a, a slight redefining of what these terms mean, and it changes everything. It changes the usefulness, it changes the application, it changes the approach, and it most desperately changes the faithfulness of Christians. He says here, being filled with unrighteousness, and this is where we get into what's most like 2 Timothy 3. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, uh, aliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. See, it's not... When we read 2 Timothy 3 and we stop and think this is just talking about homosexuals when it says lovers of their own selves, we miss the fact that it's addressing sin. Why do you sin? Because you love you more than you love God. Because God gave clear commandment on how we are to live. As it says here, we're without excuse. But the reason you sin is because you love you a little bit more in that hour. You want what you want and you're going to do what you got to do to get there. That's not exclusive to homosexuals. Now, I'm not defending homosexuality. I'm merely pointing out to you that sin is the problem. 
not the type of sin, not the way we identify ourselves in representing sin, but sin is the issue. These are difficult questions for Christians in perilous times. We're in perilous times. Sin is literally defended because you're being mean to me. You're canceling me. You're cutting me out. You refuse to fellowship with me. Uh, we could ask the sisters how many calls we get each week. Do you allow homosexuals to come in the door? The answer is we allow all sinners to come in the door. Such were we. Such are we still, but by the grace of God. We don't tell homosexuals they can't come in any more than we tell murderers they can't come in. Beloved, if we distance sinners from the grace of God, then what is the purpose of the grace of God? It is, in its very application, meant for sinners such as they. But we're in very, very perilous times, are we not? When Christians are afraid to give the gospel to those who are crying out by their very actions, by their very identification, that they are sinners, that they are unclean, that they need a deliverance or they will burn in hell for all eternity. There's not a special fire for homosexuals. There's not a special fire for liars and workers of deceit. There's not a special fire for murderers, politicians. I had to slip that one in there. It's the same hell, the same exact hell that we preach the gospel to see others delivered from. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't matter the sin, but I am going to tell you we're all sinful. We are all, every one of us, sinners. When we start casting a list and ranking the, the worst possible sins, you know what we do? We say that if your sin is up here in the top five, well, then you got a lot. What, how, what do we go to next? You have a lot of work to do? That's not how it works. God has a lot of work to do. He had just as much work to do with me as he does anyone else. Those top five sins are just as dangerous as the bottom five sins. But what we do when we rank them is we immediately say, I'm okay because my sins are down here. We're not called to rank sin. Sin in itself is rank. Sin in itself is noxious. Sin in itself is offensive. Sin needs to be addressed. We need to repent and repent today of any and all sin in our lives, whether it be homosexuality all the way down to whatever you consider the least deadly sin. But I assure you every sin is deadly. Every sin not covered, not atoned for, is absolutely deadly. The only difference between what we see there in Romans 1 and what we just read in 2 Timothy 3 is who the writer is speaking of. Paul is writing here, warning that, there, that these characteristics will seemingly develop within the framework of the professing church rather than the pagan world. Remember, when I turned over to Romans 1, I said these were the descriptions uh, or the characteristics of the pagan world during ancient times. But Paul's application to Timothy is of the church what the church will allow, what the church will be surrounded by and sometimes let in, unrepentant of. That seem, may seem like an unholy comparison. I urge you to consider what churches look like today. Just a few years ago, we were not essential in America. Are we essential to you? Tough times, right? Hard questions, we've got to answer them. How important is the church to you? It should be most important. There was a time when church was most important, when jobs weren't taken if they were going to conflict with church, when side hustles and hobbies and uh, entertainment, they weren't even considered if it got in the way of church. 
now the most uh, financially profitable sport in America, does about 80 to 85% of its playing on Sundays. National Football League. And in the past couple of years, there's been great issue and concern with them taking a knee. Probably the most, we'll say religious, of all of them, a few years back was eventually tossed on his ear, Tim Tebow, who took a knee and prayed every time he went into the end zone. Now, I don't know that anybody could really deny that he's shown quite a bit of fruit since. But now the knees are taken for very different reasons. Shameful reasons. Who can deny that Christians, even so-called professing Christians, are very much taking a bigger paycheck, even if it gets in the way of church? They're very much putting other things in the way of where they need to be. And we could go on and on, and it would end up feeling personal, so I won't. But even this very text that we quoted out of Romans 1 talked about the difference between man and animals. And we've made that mistake as well. We've prioritized things above babies. If the states just passed laws, for example, in the last week, for what states were allowed to just maliciously murder animals, we'd be appalled. Mississippi voted to mutilate puppies? How could that be? But how many states just did that with human babies? Where's the uprising? Where are our appalled and violated sensibilities? Are we okay with it? These are perilous times, Christians. If you're okay with it, then to the lost out there, the ones who Isaac has over and over again said may only see you as the only Bible they'll ever read, they see you okay with it, and they say the Bible must not say anything about this. But if they depicted tearing apart and shredding kittens for parts and selling those parts, you would be very much appalled. You would be very much disgusted. Do you know that's what they're doing with these babies? Do you know that there's plenty of evidence that that's been happening for quite a while? Where are we? Where are we? Do, does our faith, does our belief system not cross state lines? Why would it be okay for Michigan, Wisconsin, for them to do it in the very nation you call home because it's not your state? Those are our reasons for justifying it. It's not God's. I read where Elijah traveled quite a bit to preach against sin, where Elisha traveled quite a bit to preach against sin. We've illustrated where the Lord Jesus traveled quite a bit and always preached against sin. We don't have jurisdictions. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. We have a command from our high and holy father. What Paul is depicting in 2 Timothy 3 ought to break our hearts. He is talking of a time in which the church no longer stands out as being different to the secular world. I think we're almost there. We should be crying like he is. We should be crying out, Use me, Father. Send me, Father. I still have a great love and passion for the truth. What can I do? Where can I go? How can I be used? So many of us are just comfortable. So many of us are satisfied with watching somebody else or sending someone else or in the situation with Brother Cantu, seeing other nations send their missionaries here. 
I may have mentioned this on Wednesday, but I was talking to John Bayless last weekend. Uh, his his father-in-law is Paul Stepp. We were talking about the mission work out there. John spent a week out there and said they, they drove 15 miles to the nearest hardware store from where Paul set up. Uh, if you've never been out west, and trust me, that's not an exaggeration. And they walked in, and, and the man immediately looked at Paul, and he says, you're that Anabaptist. Paul's got a reputation in a very short period of time as being the Anabaptist of Wyoming. He told John jokingly, that must be as close as any Christians got to feeling like John the Baptist, because they knew him when he walked in, too. The work's not done. Wyoming's one of those 50 states, in case geography doesn't teach that anymore. It's part of America. Part of this same nation that has been blessed and used of God that needs the gospel. And it's so thin and so few that actually have gone out and preached it that Paul has been recognized immediately as being that Anabaptist. When's the last time somebody recognized us? We might think we're pretty secure here in Mississippi where just about everybody is at least pretending to be Baptist. We're not. And you'll see the difference in the next few weeks. Jingle bells, jingle bells. There are quite a few that have strayed. We call ourselves landmarkers. We consider ourselves to be the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, following the same principles on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been passed down mother, daughter, mother, daughter, mother, daughter, through church succession. But why would we stand for something different than the Lord's church did when it began? Why would we see this text and not take great alarm that our church, our person, our reputations are blending in with this world? We should be very alarmed. You know what? Pilgrims in a strange land stuck out like a sore thumb. As we're approaching this time of Thanksgiving, consider what we, most of us were probably taught growing up. Do you think those pilgrims looked odd compared to the Indians? That's what we think of when we hear pilgrim, unless we're actually students of the Bible, because pilgrim was not invented uh, when America was. They were white. The Indians most definitely weren't. They looked different. They dressed different. They talked different. They practiced different. And the Bible refers to us as pilgrims. We should also act different, talk different, believe different, speak different. Our value system should be different. Listen to the further descriptions. And for, for the most part, more questions that we need to ask ourselves. When we go through these descriptions, do they exist in us? We're just going to go right down the list here in 2 Timothy. Do these things exist in us? Whom do our characteristics say that Jesus is? I'm not concerned with who your characteristics say you are. Because if you're a Christian, you're not to be of any reputation. So whom do your characteristics say that Jesus is? That should be your utmost concern. I am a representative, an ambassador of Christ Jesus. Who do they see him to be in me? Listen to these descriptions. We see the word covetous. Covetousness is idolatry. No, it's not simply wanting what someone else has. It's idolatry. The worship of mammon or the love of money before God himself. And it doesn't always have to be money. It can be what you're going to use that money to buy. It is idolatry. If God wanted you to have it, he'd have made a way for you to have it. We can't have contentment and covetousness. Therefore, we can safely identify covetousness to be a sin. 
Do we miss out on time in church for money? Then we're covetous. Do we rob God of his tithes for fear of separation of money? Then we're covetous. We have idols. What are you going to use that money for? You know, at the church here has voted to use that money to send the Berea Baptist banner to the Philippines, to South America. And if I know this church, if the Lord gave us an opportunity, the United Kingdom, Germany, and so on and so forth, what are you going to use that money for that you have elected not to give God? You're covetous. Repent. We next see the description boasters and proud. This is humanistic pride. This is not a trait God has ever blessed, commanded, nor encouraged. Whether it be of riches, intellect, physical strength, beauty, position, or anything else, this is the sin of the devil. I want you to do an experiment this week, and I don't want you to do it longer than a week. If you don't do this already, you, you're fine to not do it at all. But just go to Yahoo a couple times this week. And usually they give you four highlights of big news, and it's always against President Trump always but anything that's not about president trump is usually about a kardashian usually about a football player usually about something concerning race and the other articles are usually supporting biden or attacking trump almost every single day boasters proud beloved i don't remember last time we elected a politician at any level that wasn't a boaster and wasn't proud and that's also president trump I don't stand in the pulpit and defend him as a Christian man. I'm not sure that you can put those words next to his name. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm not his pastor, and I'm certainly not his judge. But understand, beloved, it's not defendable. It's not defendable. We as Christians, if we don't have candidates that stand for those things, we ought to run. Hear me. If we don't have candidates that stand for those things, then we ought to run if we do. That's probably not something you're used to hearing. But where do you think these Christian politicians are going to come from if they don't come from the Lord's church? Where will Christian leadership come from in our homes if they don't come from Christian men? Why would we expect the world to be accountable for a good moral sensibility? They don't have one. Christians are charged with living a holy life because he's holy. 1 Timothy 3.6, not a novice, as he's describing here, as, as these are most commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. This is the inexperience. This is the novice. This is their great danger, the great snare, the great trap. Pride. Pride, the haughty spirit that comes before the fall. And there is none in here or out there that is immune to it. Pride. It's the great song of the devil. You are so great. You are so worthy. You are so capable. You can deliver yourself. Surely God does not mean you would die. Surely he doesn't consider this a sin. 
boasters. Proud should therefore be abstained from if pride leads to fall or the con is considered, as Paul writes here, the condemnation of the devil. Then 1 Thessalonians 5.22 applies, abstain from all appearances of evil. Without natural affection is a phrase that we see in 2 Timothy 3. And we could go back to that citation from Romans 1, but I'll leave that to you in your own studies. It was Romans 1, 18 through 32. But Paul writes that there will be a great increase in unnatural affections and perverse behaviors. And he, uh, specifically what we see in Romans is, is perverse sexual behaviors, but the lust begins in the heart, does it not? It doesn't begin in the action, it begins in the heart. It begins in the one that didn't flee from Potiphar's wife. It begins with the one who stared at Potiphar's wife a little too long. That convinced Potiphar's wife there was an interest there. No, I don't describe Joseph. I describe David. He shouldn't have been looking to begin with. He certainly shouldn't have picked up the phone and beckoned to have her come over. You understand they didn't have phones back then, for those who are uh, taking every word literally. But it began with the lust. He began with the wandering eyes. Where should his eyes have been? If he wasn't a soldier, and he was, his eyes should have been on the front lines with his soldiers. But for those of us today who aren't soldiers, his eyes should have been on the word of God. His eyes should have been watching toward the heavens looking for the coming of our master. His eyes should not have been looking and gazing at his neighbor's wife. Do we know what natural affection should be for a man? That's the question I want us to concern ourselves with. Anybody could watch any of these full pharmaceutical commercials, and just about every one of them now have dudes kissing. Anybody wondered why there's not two ladies kissing in these commercials? It's because your souls are being vexed. You're literally being played by the disgustful reaction you have every single time you witness those actions. For whatever reason, men were numb to seeing two ladies kiss. Where have our eyes been? Sermon for another time. But let us discuss what the Bible says about the natural affections for a man. Genesis 3.16, Unto the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Proverbs 31 known most of the time as the greatest picture of what a, uh, a Proverbs 31 woman should be, as we like to say. Listen to this. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion for, to her maidens. She considereth a field, and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the staff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing." 
and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth and with, with wisdom, and her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Uh, ladies, you probably think I read that for you. Nope. The question was, what should a natural affection be for a man? This woman. That's who your affection should be for. Not beauty, not favor, not power, not wealth. One in which the husband is said to be able to safely trust in her. One in which puts her children first. Not World of Warcraft, not her job, not the car, not the neighbor's kids, but her kids. One who would miss Sunday school for one who's not feeling great. One who would slave away all week long to make sure her family was fed and cared for. Y'all have a Proverbs 31 woman who's been caring for this flock for a very long time. Sitting over yonder in case you didn't see me look. She's a great blessing to me. I know she's had to have been a great blessing to y'all. And no doubt a tremendous blessing to Brother Milburn. Ladies, Proverbs 31 is for you. Does it apply? Even in these perilous times, are you a Proverbs 31 woman? Or have the times changed you? Have the times necessitated that you be someone else? That you prioritize other things? Surely God will understand. No. God doesn't need to understand your reasons for sin. Repent today. You know, the, the reason that so many women are in the workforce is because men don't make that much money anymore in the scheme of things. And why don't they? Because women had to enter and stay into the workforce. I'm not blaming women. I'm telling you how math works. I have a business degree. I studied it quite a bit. There's only so much of it to go around. And as long as we all keep jockeying for position, nobody actually excels. And as long as both the husband and the wife are constantly jockeying for position, nobody's able to care for the kids. And as long as you don't care for the kids, the world does. How did we get where we are? How did we get to such a place where for probably 30 or 40 years now evolution's been taught in our schools as truth? Not theory, as truth. I remember in first grade being told about the Jurassic period. What, if, what would a first grader care? Dinosaurs are cool. Plant the seed. Plant the seed. Who knows what other devastation has been wrought in the absence of parents, mothers with their children, fathers looking for a Proverbs 31 wife. It doesn't start with the mother. It doesn't start with the mother. Men, what, who are we looking for? What are we looking for? Are we looking to please the Lord or ourselves? Listen to Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 23. Very popular verse in the world or a very popular set of verses to the world. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Let's stop right there. 
I'm not concerned about your feelings. Not even a little bit. What I'm concerned for is that we understand what these words mean. Submit does not mean slave. Submit does not mean get beat because this is what God has for you. Does the church beat you? Does the Lord beat you? Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, when they can't submit to us, they've lost the picture that the Lord has given them for how they are to submit themselves to him. Lead your homes as Christ Jesus led the church. And we're going to get to that in a moment as well. Submit yourselves. This is a willing submission. Not bondage. Willing submission unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Doesn't mean he has to earn you. Doesn't mean he's got to buy you. Doesn't mean you have to always be pleased with everything he does to submit yourself. You're just to submit yourself. And gentlemen, you ought to be uh, submitted untoable. You ought to be leading right. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. There's an and there, not a but. There's no conjunction giving us reason to ignore this command. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. That's not simply, oh, I love you. Taking her to a movie every once in a while. Listen to the bar and where it's set. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That means, gentlemen, you love your wives enough to say what the priorities are in your home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That means their longing should line up with your longing, and your longing should line up with the Lord's longing, and that means there is never going to be a good reason to miss church. Never going to be a good reason to disobey God. That means that the, the underlying principle in your home is set by the husband, obeyed and submitted to by the wife and the children as they come into this scene in just a moment. And it all lines up and pictures the church. That means the children have a natural understanding of the church because it's been displayed in the home. That means they understand how important church is because they understood how important it was in the home. Then he goes on, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Ephesians 5 is very precious, and we've, we've preached on it recently, so I won't dwell there a whole lot longer. What ought our natural affections to be on? It's laid out right there in Ephesians 5. Ladies, your natural affection should be for the head of the house and what his affections are set upon. 
And husbands, if your affections are set on anything but the Lord, you don't get to blame the wife when everything goes off the rails. If your affections are set on anything else, don't be surprised if Sundays aren't the Lord's day soon. Don't be surprised if when you have to work, which you shouldn't be anyway, they don't come. Don't be surprised if it's so hard to start family devotions in your home. If you've never led right, you've never illustrated that your affections are upon God. Now, it's not too late. This is what repentance is for. These are why we are asking these questions right now concerning Christians in perilous times. And it's not for those who aren't here. I don't have any control over who comes and doesn't. But you're here on the day this message was preached. These are for you. There must be something there for you. Must be something there to write upon your heart on what you're looking for in a husband or a wife one day. What you ought to be considering as far as your natural affections. Don't just walk out of here and say, this is too hard, I'm going to be gay. No, beloved. You're a sinner already. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stop trying to identify what's worse. If he's not first in your life, that is the worst. It doesn't get worse than that. You're going to have a, a truckload of sin backing in any minute if he's not first in your life, but it started there. Repent today. Put the Lord Jesus Christ first in your hearts, first in your minds, first in your practice, first in your day, first in your week. Prioritize him above all else, and you're going to start to see things line up a whole lot differently. And it's a journey, and it won't be easy if you're, if, if you're already off the rocker here. But he's with you. He's carrying that load. He's directing your ship. If you're his, he's not waiting for you to let him in. He's probably going to allow this lesson to be a little bit more painful than most. But you need to understand that your priority has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. All the other wickedness, all the other labels that have been applied to what it is you're doing or not doing, they don't matter if he's not first. If he's first, he'll identify the things that need to be addressed. For Rebecca and I, I remember he identified them seemingly one by one at a pretty rapid pace. And just as soon as we thought we gave up the last thing we were going to have to give up, there was another thing that popped up on the radar. Walk away from this. Do away with this. Abstain from all appearances of evil. He, for us, he would take a sermon and just burn it into our hearts and minds. The, the abstain from all appearances of evil, that was one of them. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, that was one of them. 2 Corinthians 6, going into 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, that was another section. It got to the point where I didn't want her to tell me scripture anymore because that would be another one and another one and another one. That's how the Lord works. His word is profitable, as it says there at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let us take these things very seriously. Let us be in very much prayer. Even if you don't think that you have a problem with this particular lesson, be very much in prayer and meditation that the Lord will reveal unto you your current state and your current need. 